we encourage you to continue to be praying about uh, this time of year, missions emphasis that we uh, have each year during the Easter season uh, concerning North American missions. Uh, work going on here in the United States, Canada, I think even Puerto Rico and other places there in the Caribbean, uh, the North American Mission Board is uh, involved in. And so uh, a lot of good work, a lot of great um, work actually going on in many of our cities especially. And so just be prayerful this week. I know there's some information out there in the ministry connection you can pick up and learn more and be praying more specifically, but also be prayerful about what you can give to further the, uh, the efforts of our um, collective resources together of our network of churches as we continue to seek to invest the gospel uh, in North America for the glory and praise of God. Uh, it's a great opportunity for us to take part in. I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 8, Judges chapter 8. We are continuing with Gideon. Uh, my guess is, is that you are more, fami more familiar with the Gideon of chapter 7 than you are the Gideon of chapter 8. Uh, Gideon chapter 7 makes for a great story. Uh, Judges chapter 8 makes for a horrible ending to Gideon's story anyway. Um, so let's look together at this continued narrative of the life of Gideon here in Judges, Judges chapter eight. And uh, we wanna walk through this chapter together today to consider what God would teach us, what he would help us understand when it comes to um, certain things we need to be aware of in our own lives as God's people. So let's pray one more time as we prepare our hearts for his word. Lord, would you help us now? Help us to have the hearts that we need, the ears that we need, the eyes that we need to receive the truth that we need. We pray, God, for help. We pray for guidance. We pray for conviction, for direction, for everything, Lord, that you would deem necessary in our lives uh, so that you would be glorified and that we would continue to be more and more like Jesus. Help us, Lord, now as we consider your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Success can be dangerous. Success can be dangerous. Yet, it is the very thing that we are urged in this culture to pursue with everything that we have. And who doesn't want to be successful? I mean, if I were to ask you today, do you want to be successful? I think everyone would raise their hands and yet we would all have probably varying definitions of what success looks like. And in fact, it can be a great thing. Success can be a good thing. Success can be one of those things that God uses to glorify him and bless you and encourage you. And so sermon today is not about how bad success is, it's about how dangerous it could be. It's not a bad thing understanding where it has its place and limitations and understanding it under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and for his glory. But on the other hand, success, while it can be good, it can be the very thing that destroys us. Isn't that interesting? It's the very thing that our culture and our society urges us to pursue at all costs with everything that we can be, and yet it can be at the same time the very thing that destroys us. The reason I say that success can be so dangerous is that it has the tendency to fuel one of our strongest and most relentless enemies. An enemy that is never far away and an enemy that follows you wherever you go. 
And that enemy is the enemy of pride. As the story of Gideon progresses, it becomes apparent, at least at this point in the life of the nation of Israel, that the true enemy of Israel was not really the Midianites or the Canaanites. The true enemy of Israel was was themselves. I think Judges chapter eight is a good indication of that and it's a good reminder for us that sometimes the enemy does not attack from the outside, but rather comes from within. It's a good good reminder for us because I think it helps us pause and check ourselves and check our own hearts. When we read and walk through this chapter today, the the irony that emerges from Judges 8 is, is that even though God miraculously delivers Israel from the hands of the evil Midianites, Israel's success quickly spirals into their own destruction. So let's walk through Judges chapter eight and consider what this chapter would have for us when it comes to the enemy that we all face, the enemy of pride, if you will, and how in the story of Gideon, we find four reasons why pride, success attached to that, uh, really pride being, being uh, the problem when, it, when, when we are successful, uh, problem we have to guard against, four reasons why we must attack and destroy pride at all costs. Why is it so problematic and what is the danger of pride? Why is it such a vicious enemy that we need to attack? Let's point out four different things today in our text, four different things concerning the reasons why pride must be attacked and why pride must be considered in our own lives. Four truths, number one, truth number one, pride, pride hinders our unity as God's people. If you look at with me in verses one through three of Judges chapter eight, it really continues the narrative out of chapter seven. There's really not a break uh, except for your little heading there in your Bible. So just assume you're coming really right out of the same context of chapter seven. Judges chapter eight, verse one, it says, then the men of Ephraim said to him, said to Gideon, what is this you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight with Midian. And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So if you remember from last week, Gideon has this great army of 32,000 soldiers getting ready to go against the Midianites who have thousands, even thousands more than Gideon has. And and so he's prepared, he's called of God to go against the Midianites to deliver Israel from under the hands of the Midianites who had judged them and oppressed them. And now he's about to go into battle against them. God has promised him victory. And yet God says, the only problem is, is you have too many men and We won't rehash the sermon from last week, but he basically reduces Gideon's army to 300. And he does this miraculous, miraculous work with these 300 men. He goes against the Midianites and God clearly defeats the Midianites and has them, the remaining ones that weren't destroyed on the run. And now Gideon and his 300 men are chasing them. During that that scene, Gideon calls upon the, the, the tribe of Ephraim to help. He said, listen, they're coming your way. Can you... 
Can you just be aware of that and stop them when they get there? And so understand that Gideon, he's part of the tribe of Manasseh. There are 12 tribes of Israel, right? In the land, in, in, in the land of, of, of promise in Canaan. And so Gideon's tribe is now calling upon another tribe to help out as these 300 are, are, are fleeing. And he's like, listen, you need to catch up with them. And so they do, and they, they get some of them, and they chop off two of their heads and say, here you go, Gideon. That's chapter seven. You can go back and read that if you missed that. Um, and now this, this pursuit of these, the, the remaining Midianites still continues. And as Gideon makes his way, you really have to see it on a map. He's making his way, uh, chasing the remaining Midianites. The Midianites make their way across the Jordan River uh, east into, out of the promised land. And Gideon's in hot pursuit after them. And he comes to the tribe of Ephraim in chapter 8. Ephraim had responded to their call for help, and you would think that Ephraim would be like, hey, let's go get them together, but that's not the case. When you get to chapter eight, it's apparent. It is clear that Ephraim, that tribe and its leaders are angry with Gideon. They're upset with him. I mean, he did call them for help, but it was not until later on in the battle. You have to understand that Ephraim was a large tribe. It was a strong tribe. It was a tribe from which Joshua came. And so they kind of had a chip on their shoulder anyway. They thought that they were kind of the big bad guys. And, and if, if anything, if anybody was going to do anything, it would be them. But yet this little weak tribe, Manasseh and Gideon and his little 300 men got themselves into this, this, this battle um, against the, the Midianites, and now they're calling on them in the midst of the battle, calling on Ephraim to help. And Ephraim's a little, little mad about that. They basically say there, what, um, in verse one, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight with Midian? So their concern, their, their problem with Gideon is that you didn't call upon us until you were in the midst of this battle. Why didn't you ask us before this battle even took place to help? It's kind of, you know, like this little tribe now gets into this skirmish with this massive Midianite force, and it's as if uh, Ephraim is now being called in to help in the midst of that. And they're like, why didn't you, why, why weren't we involved from the get-go? What's the, what's the deal here? And so they're upset. And so Gideon does some diplomacy there with them and, and kind of smooths things over. Now, there was a reason, if you remember back in chapter seven, that God did not use people like Ephraim, other tribes, and there was a reason that God dwindled the tribes or the, the army down to 300. Remember uh, Judges chapter seven, verse two, key, key verse in really the entire chapter of chapter seven. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Therein lied the problem with the Israel as a whole but especially Ephraim. They were proud people and God knew that. He said, listen, I'm going to use the weakest tribe and a reduced version of that tribe at that to accomplish my purposes. One of the reasons he didn't call on someone like the, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim is he knew how prideful and boastful they would be. They would be quick to boast. It's exactly what they're doing here. We're gonna to continue to see that as we walk forward in this passage. And so what you see in chapter eight, sister tribe, right? Israelites, instead of rejoicing with Gideon and his army of what, and all that God had accomplished in this amazing victory over the Midianites, instead of rejoicing with Gideon, they were quick to be angry with him because their authority was not consulted until late in the game. Now, what do we see here? 
What we see here is that Ephraim was more concerned with their status and self-glory than they were with celebrating with their neighboring tribe, Gideon. They were more concerned with their own status than they were with God's glory. It was clear that God did this amazing thing with Gideon and his 300 men that drank water like a bunch of dogs. Chapter seven, last week. And so it was a glorious thing, but they were not rejoicing. They were upset. They were angry. And friends, if we're not careful, that same kind of attitude can show up in each of us today. We, instead of rejoicing with others in the amazing things that God is doing in their lives and how he's raising them up and doing these things in and through them, instead of rejoicing with them, we can become angry towards them or resentful towards them if we're not so careful. I mean, just think about this in your own place of work, for example. How do you typically respond when someone gets a promotion? A promotion that maybe you've been working hard towards. Maybe a promotion that deep down inside you really wanted, but instead this other person received it. How do you respond to that? What goes on in your own heart when things like that happen? Do you celebrate with them or do you hold a grudge against them? Even in the church, these attitudes can pop up so frequently. What about when someone is asked to serve in a particular ministry and you think that maybe you should have been asked? You grow frustrated towards them or a little envious or I think this happens to, to many of us if we're not careful. Maybe, maybe someone that we know in the church, or it doesn't have to necessarily be in the church, someone we know is just exploding in growth spiritually. They're just, God is just doing amazing work in their hearts and in their lives and, and they're bearing fruit, they're flourishing. God is just all over them and, and amazing things are happening and we just kind of stand back and, and are skeptical. And truth be known, we're more envious of them than we are thankful. Well, I wish that was me. Why can't I be growing like that? Why, why is it that they seem to be benefiting from certain things? Or we'll stand back and say, well, that won't last. I know how they really are. And so we will sulk and pout and oftentimes remove ourselves from any involvement with other believers and even with the church. This is exactly what's going on here in the heart of the people of Ephraim. They are, they are upset. They, they have this chip on their shoulder and they're unable, they're unable to rejoice in the victory that Gideon and his people receive from the hand of God. Friends, we need, to, we need to be on guard against this kind of attitude. We, we certainly don't need to follow the way of Ephraim here. We need to learn humility and celebrate God's grace wherever it is found even when others seem to be benefiting more from it than we are. It's hard though, isn't it? It's hard to see others benefiting and others growing and others flourishing when we don't seem to be keeping up to pace. We're not just ask you, how have you allowed pride to drive a wedge between you and others? How have you allowed the, the pride of your own heart and the, the, the envy and the, the jealousy of your own heart to, to kind of keep you from celebrating the victories that others are, in, are enjoying? I think oftentimes that if we're honest, all of us can fall into that trap and it's so subtle at first, isn't it? 
I mean, just think even within the church, others are being considered, others are being asked to serve, others seem to be just flourishing, others seem to be doing all of these things so incredibly well and, and, and to God be the glory. But yet we, we often struggle. Friend, how have you allowed pride to keep you from joyfully participating in God's mission? Like oftentimes we, we, we are held back from truly serving. Just think about the opportunity that Ephraim had. God had clearly called Gideon to do this amazing thing in and over the Midianites. Victory was promised, victory was assured, and, and really there's just some, some, some cleaning up here that needs to take place and, and, it's, and it's done. Ephraim had an opportunity to join in that. They had an opportunity to join in what God was doing and to, to be part of that, but yet, and, and they were, but yet they were grumbling the whole way. Friends, oftentimes pride can, can drive a wedge even between brothers and sisters in Christ. Pride can often drive that wedge in between us to keep us from, from, from serving together and joyfully participating together in God's mission. And guard your heart. Be aware of how, how subtle and, and, and how, how often present pride can be in this way. It hinders unity. And we'll continue to see that, that even that's the case in this next point, which leads me to point number two. Pride needs to be defeated, needs to be attacked because it will stir up fear. It will stir up fear. If you'll pick up in verse four, Judges chapter eight, verse four, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I'm pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give you bread to give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeban Zalmun into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Nice guy. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. The men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come, against, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Sounds very peaceful, huh? So what you have here are two other groups, this, the, these territories, these towns, if you will, are within the, 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 the region of Gad. This is one of the tribes that did not cross over the Jordan and settle there. And so this is now, they've crossed the Jordan going east. So if you're thinking map, think Israel, uh, anything to the west of the Jordan was the promised land. Now they're on the east side of the Jordan into, into that area where a couple of the tribes remained without crossing over. And there was a deal cut back in Joshua. You can go read about that in Joshua. So now they're there and they come to these two towns and they're like, listen, Gideon's, we're exhausted. We're, we're about to finish this victory against the Midianites. We just need some bread. We just need some bread. Now, you'd think that would be a simple request. Gideon simply asked these men for food and you would think, no problem, here's some food. We wish you well on your way. But that's not the case. They're like, instead of saying, sure, here's some bread, they're like, Midianite's dead yet? And he's, no, no victory, no bread. That, that's pretty much what they said. You know, if, if they're not dead, then we, we can't help you. Now you're thinking, well, why would they say that? To be fair to them, if you understand geographically where they are, they're on the Eastern side of the Jordan. 
And if for some reason Gideon and his 300 men did not finish off the Midianites, it could have been if Gideon and his army was destroyed that the Midianites could have re-strengthened and come back. And they're one of the first places on their way back that the Midianites would have destroyed. And had they gotten word that they assisted Gideon, they would have had a hard time at the hands of the Midianites. And so that's probably what they're thinking. They're thinking, hey, if this goes bad, we're gonna be in a bad spot. We're gonna be in a bad spot. And so Gideon says, that's okay. I'm going to go after these kings and when I have victory over them, you're going to pay for it. He's pretty clear, isn't he? Verse seven, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. That, that's, not a, that's, not, that's not a kind word. It's just not something you say to someone that you're happy with, all right? Just in case there's any confusion, Gideon is not happy. Just in case there's any confusion, this, maybe this is a biblical way that they talked about peace. This is not peace. Gideon is angry and he is going to bring vengeance upon them because they refuse to help him. You begin to see this, this turn in Gideon's own heart. A man that God had raised up, a man that God had used in an amazing way is now starting to turn in his own heart. One of the problems that we see here is that while we can on one hand understand the refusal of these men of Succoth and Penuel because they were vulnerable to swift attack if Gideon was to lose, I mean, they had lived a long time in fear. Oftentimes they would have been one of the first towns hit from the hands of the Midianites and their army. Uh, when, the, when the harvest would come, uh, Midianites would come down and, and sort of come and ransack the Israelites and, and these towns would be some of the first that the Midianites would, would hit. And so you can understand their reluctance. You can understand at least where they're coming from. They had lived in fear a long time, but the problem was is that they had grown comfortable in their fear. They had grown comfortable in their fear. And it was as, as if they were more comfortable with the ongoing oppression that they encountered than they were with the potential freedom that they were going to have. Does that sound familiar? On one hand, you can understand their fear, but on the other hand, they had surely heard of the miraculous victory that God had given Gideon already and his, his hand, how it had prevailed over the Midianites previously. And now they could participate in the small way of giving bread. They could participate in, in this finishing off of the Midianites. But they are more taken with fear than they are with faith. They are more taken with fear than they are with faith. Friends, one of the things, one of the lessons we learn from these verses and this part of this story, again, this is, this is fellow Israelites refusing, and Ephraim, angry, second now, refusing to come alongside and help because they are more concerned with their own safety, which is a, they're, they're more concerned with themselves than they are with Gideon, which is a manifestation of pride. Pride isn't always just this um, overflowing arrogance. Pride can be manifest in fear. Fear is a form of pride. It's, it's a, it's, you're trusting more in yourself than you are God. That's what fear is. It's a manifestation of pride. And so when we're fearful, it's just a form of pride that's emerging from us that if we're not careful, 
that we will justify. It's okay to be fearful, but yet it's just a manifestation of pride. And that's what they're doing. They're trusting in themselves more than they are the Lord at this point. And when we are more concerned with, with ourselves or we're more concerned with personal security than we are with God's mission, we are not in a healthy place. We're not in a healthy place. This is exactly where these two groups of people were, the men of Succoth, the men of Penuel. They were more concerned with their own safety and their own personal security than they were coming alongside of Gideon and walking in God's victory. Friends, this could emerge in our own hearts and lives in a number of ways. Maybe you have long been oppressed and challenged by certain sins and you would rather continue to walk in what you have known rather than to know the freedom and victory that God brings. It's often, it's often said of, of those who have been in prison for a long time, you can, you can see many interviews in this way, if someone's been in prison for 10, 20, 30 years and they get out and they just really don't know what to do with themselves, they're more comfortable inside than they are outside. You've heard those stories before, that they, would, they just kind of feel more safe, they feel safer inside the prison than they do outside. This is very much an illustration of what, what sin does to us. We sometimes feel more comfortable under that oppression than we do walking in God's victory and freedom. And this is what you see these men struggling with here. They've been oppressed by the Midianites for so long. They've been comfortable with fear for so long. It seems that they would just rather retreat back into that than they are trusting God and walking forward in faith. Maybe you, maybe you just feel too vulnerable and afraid of being exposed. Again, recall last week's message where we talked about how God actually uses our weaknesses, uses our vulnerability for his glory. Maybe, maybe like these, these towns and like these men, maybe, maybe you're just waiting on the circumstances to change. You say, well, pastor, let me just, let me just kind of go in a holding pattern here. I'm just waiting for things to improve with my life before I continue to walk in faith. I'm just waiting for things to get better, waiting for relationships to shore up, waiting for the, the right context, waiting for the right opportunities, waiting, waiting, waiting. Just waiting for, for God to strengthen me more before I continue. Well, there's appropriate times to wait. The Bible talks about that. But there are also sinful times of waiting. And I think the Bible speaks to that as well. Friends, if we wait simply to our circumstances change or to somehow we feel more security before we participate in what God is calling us to do, then again, we're more focused on our own needs than we are on the call of God. We can't always wait till things get easier. We can't always wait till things get safer. We can't always wait till things fall into place like we think they should before we walk in obedience to God. You know, the irony in all of this was that while the men of Succoth and Penuel feared the wrath of Midian, they ended up being the recipients of Gideon's wrath. How ironic. They feared this enemy and ended up being recipients of judgments from their own. 
Now, it's not to justify what Gideon did, but it just shows that sometimes our own justification for our lack of faith and our own justification for our own fears end up coming to bite us in ways we would never expect. So one of the things that that pride does is it stirs up fear in our hearts. It causes us to be more concerned with our safety and protection and ourselves than we are with what God is calling us to do. A third truth about pride, another reason why we need to fight against it is found in verses 10 through 21. Pride leads us to forget God's grace. Pride leads us to forget God's grace. Pick up in verse 10 with me. Now Zeba and Zalmunna, these were the Midianite kings, were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men. Just shows you how big this Midian army was. There's 15,000, and this was just a few of them, right? It's how big this Midianite army was. Just a few left, just 15,000 to Gideon's 300. All who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. So we know there, based upon those numbers, that there had been 135,000 Midianites that these 300 led by Gideon took on, 15,000 left. Verse 11, and Gideon went up by the way to the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbia and attacked the army for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian. Zeba and Zalmunna, he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the accent of Harry's. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who were so exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, are, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you have saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeban Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon rose and killed Zeban Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks, or on the necks of their camels. As chapter eight progresses, Gideon's character digresses. As things continue to develop in this chapter, Gideon's own character continues to deteriorate. While Ephraim and Succoth were certainly had their own faults, Gideon is not blameless here. A lot of times we hold him up as this great hero and judges, but that's because we don't get past chapter seven. Think about it. Gideon was chosen, called by God to defeat the Baals and now to defeat the Midianites in this amazing way. And now all of a sudden we see him turning against his own out of vengeance. By the way, it's the first time in the book of Judges that you see Israelites turning against an, another Israelite. Just shows you how dark of a day it now was in Israel. And this right after they had been miraculously delivered from their enemy. So in his success, 
Gideon, it seems, had already forgotten, already forgotten the lesson of the 300. He's already seems to be, seems to be not meditating on God's grace any longer. His anger towards his fellow Israelites show, show this. It shows, it demonstrates that he desired self-glory more than he did being faithful to what God had called him to do. And he desires at some level, some, some level of honor and, and authority. And it's a huge lesson for us. Success, even success given by God can lead us to have an exalted view of ourselves. Friends, this is so true, so dangerous. Gideon's view of himself led him to pursue vengeance instead of reconciliation. Had grace been operative in his heart at this point, he may have still been angry towards his fellow tribes, but he would have pursued reconciliation and not vengeance. He'd lost sight of the grace of God in his own life and now was unwilling to extend it to these that clearly God would have him to. He simply wanted justice and not reconciliation. And pride will often lead us this way. Pride will lead us to treat others in the same way if we're not careful. There are times for justice. There are times where accountability has to be given and, and, and people held to that. Absolutely. I'm not talking about that we shouldn't do that. We should. And the Bible gives us clear instruction on how that process should go. But it seems here that Gideon doesn't even give them a chance. Instead of patiently enduring the wrong and seeking to be reconciled, he seeks to take the place of God and rain down justice. It was his desire and demand for honor that led him this way. To quote Tim Keller, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, he said, success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. God-given victory can easily be used to confirm the belief that in fact, we have earned blessing for ourselves and should receive the praise and glory for that success. Success can easily lead us to forget God's grace. Being successful is certainly central to the American dream. And again, who doesn't want to be successful? I mean, even as a church, we want that, don't we? We want to be a successful church, right? We want to do that. We want to do that well for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with that. We should strive for that with every ounce of our being, most certainly, but in a biblically informed way. Because we don't want to succumb to the definition of, a, of success in a worldly fashion, and so many churches do that today. Success is defined in how many seats are filled. How many programs are going and how many this and that and, and it's driven by numbers and not maturity and health. We have to be so careful that we, that we don't fall into the same traps and thinking. Success can be good and beneficial if it's rooted in the honor and glory of God, but it can also be quite dangerous and lead us to do things that we dare not do. The problem that Gideon faced here was that he had forgotten God's grace. He had forgotten the work of God in his own heart. Back in, seven, back in chapter seven, verse 15, when Gideon was confronted with his own weakness and he clearly, he was given a vision of how God was going to bring this victory, he worshiped, he worshiped God. 
In chapter seven, verse 15, we find Gideon worshiping and then obeying God. And now in chapter eight, instead of worshiping and obeying God, Gideon is worshiping himself. Somehow he had lost sight, forgotten the one who had called him, forgotten the one who had equipped him, forgotten the one who had even reassured him. An old Scottish Presbyterian, not to quote all the Presbyterians this morning, but they, they're Christians too, most of them. This is what Andrew Bonar said. He said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. What a word I think for us to hear. What a word that Gideon needed to hear. A lot of times when, when we're preparing to go into something, we are alert, we are attuned to what's going on in our own heart, we're aware, and then when we are given some level of, of success or some level of victory in our lives, that's when we kind of grow complacent. Once we've hit that mountaintop high, we, can, we kind of let our guard down a little bit, don't we? exactly what we have to be warned against. Friends, there's never a time when you should let your guard down. Your heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitful. It will lie to you. Friends, we are just as prone to this as Gideon was. When we find ourselves doing well, whether that's in our career, doing well in our family, maybe even doing well spiritually, I think that in some ways that's when we're most vulnerable. because that's when we begin to take our eyes off of the one whom we need. And we begin to look more to ourselves and we begin to look more to our own abilities and our own, our own giftings to sustain us and to lead us instead of looking to the one whom we need to continue to look. We grow self-confident and we boast in what we perceive are our accomplishments. And then after a while, we find ourselves in a place just like Gideon. Friends, we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to forget the grace of God in our lives. That's why we need the gospel every single day. Every single day. Sometimes we think as Christians that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the fact that he lived, he died, and he rose again was the very thing that God used to get us in to heaven. Well, that's true. It's the only way you'll get to heaven by trusting in that. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're like, what do I do? How do I even get to know what this, what this is all about? Well, look to Jesus because he's your only hope. He lived a life you should have lived. He died a death you all, we all should have de- deserved to die. And he did that willingly for us so that if we would look to him and trust in him, we could be saved. And that's exactly how he gets us into his family. He adopts us into his family. But friends, the gospel is not something we, that just gets us in. It's something that we need every day that motivates us and sustains us because when we begin to lose sight of the very grace that saved us, we will grow, we will grow more self-sufficient, self-confident, self this, self that, self this, self that. That's exactly what I think we see developing in Gideon's life. He, He had lost sight 
of that sweet grace that had drawn him so close and now he was in a downward spiral because he had taken his eyes off of the very reality, the very thing that got him where he was to begin with. So Christians, if you've been a Christian for a week or 50 years, you need the gospel as much today as you did when you first heard it. You need the grace of God in your life today, just as much today as you did when you were first saved. Look to Christ, be reminded of where you've come. Be reminded of where God has brought you, how he's brought you and how he will continue to take you. And then number four, last point. Why is pride dangerous? It leads to failure. It leads to failure. I know that's kind of an overstatement or uh, obvious reflection of this passage, but as I've told you before, I'm not the most creative. That's what we find here in verse 22. Let's look in verse 22 uh, to the rest of the chapter. It says, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me, every one of you give me the, uh, the earrings from his spoil for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them and they spread a cloak and every man threw, it in, threw in it the earrings of his spoil and the weight of the golden earrings that was, he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars uh, that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it, put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Orpah, uh, of the Abderzites. As soon as Gideon died, listen to this. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. How many times have we seen maybe a professional athlete ruin his or her career because of one or many, a series of decisions they've made? It's drug use or violence or whatever the case may be. Even college athletes poised to make it big only to fail because of a foolish decision. It's one of the realities you will find in the Bible is that while you will find people like Gideon, we'd even go to David, Moses, I mean, people who are listed in the Faith Hall of Fame, Hebrews 11, while you may say these were faithful men, and certainly we can see a, a time in Gideon's life when he was. What, what I, I so appreciate about the Bible, when you read the Bible, it's real. It, it exposes these, these men and women for who they truly are. They're good and they're bad. 
So I think sometimes we have this over-sanctified view of, of the heroes of the Bible. There's only one hero of the Bible, by the way. His name is Jesus. But we have these, these human heroes that we kind of elevate and, and we, 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 we think as if they can do no wrong. What I so appreciate about the Holy Spirit inspiring these, these, these passages for us is it exposes these people for who they truly are. Good, they're good and they're bad. And what we see here is, is Gideon, his leadership, while it began on a good note, he doesn't end so well. He doesn't end so well. His leadership ultimately took the people from where they were right back to where they were. It really didn't take them anywhere. Instead of being led to worship God and coming out of their, their, their past idolatry, they, they kind of in an interim sort of worship Gideon and then they go right back to worshiping idols. You look at verse 22, the, the men of Israel said to Gideon, that they're, they're glad for him in some ways, they wanna make him king. They wanna make him king and to, to his credit, he responds rightly. He says, I'm not going to be your king, nor my sons. God is going to be the one who rules over you. You don't need me, you need the Lord. And to his credit, he says the right thing. But there's always one of those, isn't there? However, even though he says the right thing, his actions almost prove the opposite. While he says, you have no need of a king, he turns right around and almost begins to act like one. So what he's saying does not match what he truly believes. I mean, he, he asks for their gold, and in fact, he not only acts like a king, he almost acts like a high priest, doesn't he? He fashions this religious, this, this uh, ephod that, that a high priest would wear, and on that would, would be a, a series of stones where the high priest would, so to speak, receive yes and no answers from God. And so by creating this, basically what Gideon is saying, he's, he's, he's almost alluding to the fact that, that he has that kind of authority. While he may have said, no, that's not what I mean. Maybe, maybe his intentions were half right, but, but that's not the case. What happens is he creates this effort, this religious um, apparel, and it becomes quickly an idol. And Gideon and his family quickly are caught up in this celebrity status. Just so dominates Christianity today, by the way, this celebrity status of, of, of pastors and worship leaders and all these things that we need to so be careful against. Uh, myself included, and looking up to other people too highly and understanding we all are, are sinners saved by the grace of God. This is what happens. Gideon creates this, this, this effort and now, now it becomes an idol. Think about this, Gideon was in such a good position. If you go back to chapter seven, he was poised. He was poised to be a great and godly leader, but fails. He fails. Instead of taking the people of God into more and more faithfulness, he leads them to unfaithfulness. Instead of unifying them, we see that they're more and more divided. And you may say, well, Verse 28, they had rest, peace in the land for 40 years. So apparently something good was happening. Well, yes, something good was happening. They, they didn't have Midianites to worry about. That was their peace. The problem they had to be concerned with now was the, the fighting against themselves, their own selfishness, their own pride that was the problem. 
And you know, it's, it's a testimony to the kindness and grace of God. Even when we're unfaithful, he is still faithful. He still gives them 40 years of peace. You think about Gideon's legacy. There really wasn't one. Verse 27, he creates this effort and all Israel hoard after it. And it became a snare to Gideon. Verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and hoard after the Baals. Friends, what does that tell us about the need for us to persevere and remain faithful even to the end? After all, our own actions or our inaction will always have an impact on others in some way. But let me just, let me just remind you, I don't wanna necessarily leave you discouraged because here's the, here's the truth. And we'll, we will leave Gideon in the hands of God and, and understand that the, the Lord did use him, but he didn't necessarily end well, much like Solomon. The good news is this, if you are in Christ, you can be encouraged. If you are a Christian, God has saved you and he has promised in Philippians chapter one, verse six, he who began a good work in you will do what? He will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. The work that God begins, he will finish in you if you are in Christ. And so what we can have hope in is, is our hope is not in people like Gideon. Our hope is in the one, the one who was like Gideon but unlike Gideon. That is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, Jesus came and brought lasting salvation where Gideon failed to bring that. Not just Gideon, but all of these judges. Where these judges failed to bring lasting salvation, Jesus brings lasting salvation. Where these men and women could not bring total victory, Jesus brings ultimate victory. Even though these men and women failed, Jesus never failed. He never failed. He finished well and he rules at the right hand of the Father today to prove it. Friends, there are, there are many struggles and there are many enemies we will face in this life and certainly our greatest enemy has been defeated once and for all. Christ has, 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 has won the victory that we all need. He has defeated Satan once and for all. It is finished, he said at the cross. It is finished. He died once and for all, but if we aren't careful, we will forget that there is an enemy within. This just as dangerous as those enemies that lurk on the outside. But friends, if we would look to Christ, our mighty champion, if we would look to our faithful deliverer, we will find that even, even our own pride can be rescued. You know, you consider these judges and you consider the good that they did do, but we also have to consider their unfaithfulness as well. I wanna remind you that in Hebrews chapter 11, we have a list of all of these men and women, not all of them, but many of them that God raised up and used at vital points in the life of his people. And many of them flourished, many of them flourished for a season and yet failed. But the truth of the matter is, is that we come out of Hebrews 11 into chapter 12 and what we need to hear and take away today. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, not looking to Gideon, not looking to some other human, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, we need to remember We need to remember that there is an enemy within us that continues to lurk and continues to bring us much harm. Friends, if we would look to Christ, if we would look to Christ, it is only in Christ that we can find true lasting victory, victory over our pride and sin and ultimate victory, ultimate victory found in the salvation that he has for his people. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you are faithful. Even with our failures, God, you can bring about your purposes. Father, I'm thankful that as we consider this word today that we're reminded that you, that you have not left the scene. Even as we make our way through some very dark passages of Judges where it seems as if the people of God are just in a bad place. God, I'm thankful that we can be reminded that you are always present, that you are at work even even in those dark moments. And Father, as we consider our own hearts today, I pray that that we would be honest, that we would be honest with you, Lord, that we would be honest to to share our own struggles with pride, our own struggles with fear, our own self-confidence, Lord, that we would just be honest with you and God, that you would just show us Show us where we are struggling. Show us where we are more dependent upon ourselves than we are you. God, expose in our own lives where we have lacked faith, where we have made poor excuses and, and, and won't serve you as we've, as we've been called to. Lord, show us where we've allowed pride to, to cause a wedge in between us and others. Lord, you know our hearts, you know our struggles. You, God, you know everywhere we where we need help. So Lord, would you speak into our hearts and lives now? Would you help us to respond to you in a faithful way today, in a way that brings you glory, in a way that would continue to, to, to keep us on the right path of faithfulness. Father, speak to us and lead us to faithfulness today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand together, let's sing as we consider what we've heard today.